So good evening. I'd like to talk this evening about taking a practice home. But first I want to speak to where I see you are, which is very different than when I arrived, <laughs> and was probably very different than when you arrived, <laughs> which was probably tired and a little gray. And, you know, it's wonderful. One of the blessings of this work is we get to watch you unfold like flowers, you know, like you know, arriving in the dead of winter, and then we get to see you bursting through like spring flowers. And it's really beautiful to see the heartfulness, the radiance, the sweetness. And the staff have been talking about what a lovely energy there is in the building uh, as you move around and as your presence has an effect, has a ripple uh, outwards. Whether you feel like you've touched matter or not, <laughs> something is happening. And it's actually one of the, I think, the, the mysteries of being human is that we don't really see our own presence. We don't see the effect that we, the, the invisible effect that we have or that we transmit through our being. You know, we are aware of our thoughts and perhaps our words and our actions, but not perhaps the most important quality, which is the quality of our presence. And as you've been cultivating mindfulness and metta for a week, that quality is pervaded by your, that presence is pervaded by those qualities. So the world thanks you for doing your practice and people who you go home to, friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, will notice that whether they say something or not it will be, it will be your that will your the practice is within you so the f- saying goes wherever you go there you are wherever you go there your heart is and you take these qualities within you so um, bob thurman often uh, makes the comment about Buddhists talking all the time about practice, practice, practice. When, when, when are we going to? When's the performance? <laughs> well, the performance is tomorrow, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> or this moment, really. So we can think of the this point in the retreat as the midpoint of the retreat, and the going home, the week, then this, this next week as you go home is the second half of the retreat where you get to put this practice into action in a very live way in your interactions, conversations, relationships with family, friends, whatnot, uh, which is where uh, the harder practice often begins. This is from the dialogue I heard. Um, somebody quoted him saying this recently. If you don't want to help the world, that's okay. Just don't cause any problems. (laughs) So if all we could remember was that, don't cause any problems, the world would probably be a better place. So the question is, at this point in the retreat, how do we bring this quality? How do we bring the Brahma-viharas, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, how how do we pervade those into our lives, into our circumstances? So I like to think that on retreat we've been cultivating 
you know, we, we've been filling that bucket with drops of metta, of compassion, of kindness, of patience, presence. And um, it reminds me of this poem that I think is a, such a, uh, um, it's a good metaphor for our, where we are in our practice, which is um, from the poet Hafiz, where he says, uh, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare, do not mix them, do not mix them. You know, and we usually in our lives, we mix a little bit of envy, a bit of fear, a bit of catastrophizing thought, and then we feel miserable. Now we've been cultivating ingredients, love, kindness, compassion. He says, you have the ingredients to turn your life, your existence into joy, mix them, mix them. And so we have, we're, as we cultivate these, these, these seeds, these qualities, we have more possibility of knowing peace, of knowing connection, of knowing love. So the practice you've been doing here is very radical. It's very transformative, which is why it's not so easy. We're cultivating the most powerful quality in the world, which is the power of love, the power of heartfulness, the power of connection, and looking at all the different ways that inhibit that, that block that, that shut that down, whether it's our hardness to ourselves, or our fear, or our hurts, or whatever habitual ways that our heart closes down. But the purpose of the practice is not to be PhD meditators on the cushion, but to actually know how to bring these inner qualities out into our lives, into our relationships, into the world. There's a story I like a lot by the, again, by the poet, Sufi poet Hafez, where a man comes to visit him, a disciple, and he's excited to share his visions of God to his teacher. And so he recounts these mystical visions and experiences. And uh, Hafez is looking quite nonplussed by the, uh, the, the stories and the, the recounting. And, and he says to the student, he says, well, that's great, but how many goats do you have? And the man says, goats? You're asking about goats, and I'm telling you about my mystical divine experience? He says, yeah, how many goats do you have? And the man was a farmer, and he told him, you know, so 42, and then Hafez proceeds to ask him a bunch of other questions, like, you know, are your parents still alive, and you look after them, and how do you take care of the, the, the workers on the land, and do you, take care of the, do you feed the birds in winter? And, and the man answers all these questions, and then he says, you ask me if I think your visions of God are true, and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person, every creature that you meet, that the practice has to have impact in the day-to-day of our life. Otherwise, it's abstract. That's not what we're doing here. So I think that if there's one thing that I'd like to impart in this talk is to, or what I'd like for you to go away with, is to trust in the practice that you've been cultivating and trust in the goodness that's been growing in your heart. The seeds of metta, the seeds of kindness, the seeds of compassion. Even if it felt like mostly it was dry or it was flat or it was hard to connect, that there's a power in bringing this intention again and again and again. And that that, that, that seed, those seeds have been planted in you and they will continue to grow. And so to trust in this, what I call the innate goodness of the heart that we've been 
in a way, nurturing and cultivating. This is a story from the poet Mary Oliver. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor, so she said the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with what is left, that loving. So I love that idea that as we plant these seeds of kindness over the years, and perhaps when, when our mind has gone to Bohemia or somewhere, that what's left is this force of kindness. We, we reap what we sow. I remember when my cousin had her first baby, uh, and actually and another friend of mine had a baby at the same time, and they both said something very similar which struck me. They said, um, I just knew what to do. I just knew how to love. And it was such a surprise to them that that was so instinctive and so natural. And I think we forget that we have that capacity. There's a story that teacher Alan Wallace talks about. Um, Imagine you're walking along the road and uh, you have um, bags of groceries and somebody bangs into you from behind and and you both stumble and you drop your groceries and you spill and you're just about to turn around and bite their head off for knocking over and you notice the other person's blind and they're also groceries are spilled and, and then the, and the, and the, 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 the heart shifts from one of anger to one of how can I help? That's the instinctive movement of the heart. It's also important to remember that we'll forget. We'll forget everything that we ever did here. <laughs> everything that anybody ever said. Um, and that's fine because we've forgotten a million times while you've been here, right? You forget you're sitting and you're, you're back in the office or you're back on vacation or you're back in nursery school and then, oh yeah, someone rings a bell. Oh yeah, IMS. Oh yeah, where am I? Meta retreat. <laughs> what is this, for Vipassana? I don't know, something. So I was teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock. Uh, I think it was a meta retreat some years ago and I take bike rides uh, there uh, when it's not snowing, which is most of the time. <laughs> and... Um, I was priding myself on this particular ride for going, you know, it was like a speed ride and I had the wind behind me and I was just cruising along thinking I was just, you know, Lance Armstrong without the drugs. <laughs> and, and then this guy comes up to, on my side and just cruises right past. And I think I'm going really fast and he just, like he's got a motor on his bike. And my first response is, I hate you. <laughs> And then I see how contracted that mind state is and how I just went from really enjoyable ride to feeling miserable and, and deficient. And then, and then, and then the, the seeds that we plant, they, they, they sprout. And the thought arose, oh, and may you be happy. And may you go as fast as you can go. And then it was like we were in this together. It's like, go. You know, he's, he's like my teammate. So it can, you know, our mind state can turn on a dime. And particularly with these, this practice, because, it, because we've been using these phrases that are so accessible and so uh, momentary, we can really transform a negative mind state in a moment. So I often notice this, um, because of the portable nature of the practice, I notice this a lot when I'm 
in traffic. And in the Bay Area where I live, there's a lot of traffic. And I'm often driving to Spirit Rock to give a talk and I get caught in traffic. And, you know, it's the rush hour. And often my first response is, oh no, and how come all you people are here? And why are you in my way? And I've got to get a Spirit Rock to give a Dharma talk and yada, 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 and pour me and what's... And I, you know, and I get you know, slow down, eventually look around, see everybody else is stressed and huffing and puffing, and um, and I realize, oh, we're in this together. Oh, and may you be happy. Oh, and may you get to where you're going on time. And may there be no traffic tomorrow. And uh, and then I realize I'm traffic. <laughs> and the person behind me is thinking I'm traffic. I'm the obstacle. Right? We're in this together. So, it, and then when I start doing meta in traffic, it's like, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's just less suffering. And I feel less antagonistic and more, oh yeah, we're, we're just, we're all suffering because of this bottleneck. So, the other kind of practice that's so portable is stealth meta, which is you carry your meta practice into places that you wouldn't, people wouldn't expect that you were meditating, like into a board meeting where most people are very bored, or into, you know, committee meeting, or into your office, or into um, hanging out with family, or shopping, or in an elevator. Or, um, it's really, it can be really playful. You're walking down the street in Manhattan, or in Cambridge, and you're just wishing people well, wishing people happiness. And it can trans- transform our inner experience. And of course, people respond because there's a certain lightness or a gladness in the heart. So I like to remember it, you know, in terms of the, the, the nitty-gritty, the specificity of the practice, um, as well as this boundless quality we've been uh, developing today, to really uh, to bring it down, as I mentioned in my other talk, to bring it down to how am I relating to this person in this moment? What's the quality of the connection? Am I really present when I write out my check at the bank, when I give somebody at the post office my parcel, when I'm uh, at the gas station handing over my $20 bill? Am I, is, am I, is it, do I see, is it, is it a utilitarian uh, transaction or am I actually present when I'm on the phone with good old United Airlines customer service? <laughs> I was once teaching a retreat in Costa Rica, and I was talking to the uh, the manager who works in the office and dealing with registration and calls mostly from Americans. And he said it really makes a difference when someone's kind. He really, it really, he remembers that person. He remembers the conversation because it stands out, and it makes a difference in his day when someone has the graciousness to be uh, kind or patient. So mostly the way that our practice unfolds and moves in our lives is actually very simple. And sometimes we overthink what we have to do, and it's not that difficult. It may be at times difficult to remember to be warm, to be kind, to listen, to be patient. But once we remember, it's actually not so difficult. It's simply the act of being human and responding in the moment with an open heart. Somewhere in the south, on a bus, sat a wispy old man holding a bunch of fresh flowers. Across the aisle was a young girl whose eyes came back again and again to the man's flowers. 
The time came for the old man to get off. Impulsively, he thrust the flowers into the girl's lap. I can see you love the flowers, he explained, and I think my wife would like for you to have them too. I'll tell her I gave them to you. The girl accepted the flowers, then watched the old man get off the bus and walk through the gate of a small cemetery. So a friend of mine, Nipun Mehta, who's I would consider a modern-day bodhisattva who's dedicated his life to generosity, his work was inspired when he went to India. He's Indian, his family's from India, and he was about, I think, 14 or 15, and was, took a long um, motorbike ride with his friend. He was sitting on the back, and it was, the roads are pretty gnarly in India, and so he eventually got travel sick and got off the bike and was throwing up uh, in a busy marketplace um, and quite distressed and feeling out of sorts and out of whack in a country he wasn't so familiar with. And um, a man came by on a bike, saw what was going on, saw that he was sick, got off his bike, had a lemon in his pocket, took the lemon out, pulled a knife from his other pocket, cut the lemon in half, gave half the lemon to Nippon, which is a wonderful... not cure, but a, a salve for, for nausea, and um, gave the lemon to Nippun, put the other le- half lemon back in his pocket, got on his bike, and pedaled off without a word exchanged. And it really struck Nippun that this person took a time out of his day to stop, to see what happened, to respond, to offer something open-handedly, not expect anything in return, and then left. And that seed was what transformed his life, actually, into a life of generosity. Um, So it can be something very small, very simple, very ordinary. But they're often the ordinary things. Mother Teresa talks about um, you can only do small things, but you can do them with great love. And she gives an example of someone asked her, how did you start your work? And it's tremendous missionary work that's now spread throughout the world and so much... uh, uh, frontline work in India, and she said, I just, when I was in Calcutta, I picked up one body at a time. That's all, I just responded to what I saw. Very simple, very ordinary. Another friend of mine, uh, a chap called Pancho, um, who works with Nippon, and uh, he uh, moved to um, the East Bay uh, to Fruitvale, Fruitvale, Oakland, Um, which is a very rough neighborhood, a lot of gang violence, a lot of uh, homicides. And they chose to move into a very dangerous neighborhood and and with their intention to practice peace, to practice kindness. And so one of the projects that I I love that they do is they, because it's Fruitvale, which is, it used to be an an old uh, uh, fruit growing region, uh, there's still a lot of orange trees and lemon trees and uh, apple and pear trees. Uh, that mostly just go untended to and the fruit just lies on the floor rotting. And so they go around the different neighborhoods and they knock on the door of the houses with these some of the amazing fruit trees and they ask if the people would like their fruit picked and if they'd like to eat them or would they be happy sharing them with uh, people in the neighborhood. So mostly people are happy to have their fruit picked. And then Pancho and his friends, they go around to local schools and homeless shelters and they distribute thousands and thousands of thousands of pounds of fruit that's local and organic <laughs> and fresh. Um, and it's just a beautiful thing. And it's, it's, again, it's just responding to what's needed in the moment. Nothing grand, nothing complicated. 
You know, if, if we think of metta as a generosity of heart, then we see how, how intimately related it is to generosity and also how it's infectious, how it touches people. I think of the story of Bhante Gunaratna, who's a monk in the Theravadan tradition who has a center in North Carolina. And when he first moved there, um, uh, it's, it's very strong practice in mindfulness and metta and would do a lot of walking around the local area that was um, somewhat rural and uh, encountered a lot of hostility from the neighbors, a lot of racism. He often talked about getting run off the road and shouted at, and sometimes the center was, was shot at. Um, and he just kept walking and he kept practicing metta, kept practicing metta. And over the years, people began to um, have a much warmer, receptive uh, relationship with him. And they, uh, as time went on, began would stop for him and offer him rides. And, um, and I think of, he talks about the power, the transformation that happened in the community happened because of the force of metta. He just kept an open heart, kept that spirit going. This is a story, again, about someone who responds with an open heart to what's needed. So I haven't held a job since April of 2011 due to multiple health issues. I currently draw disability, but I'm having trouble finding money at the end of the month, so I decided I would look for a part-time job. I've been applying and interviewing since July, but no prospects are looming. This past Tuesday, it was freezing cold outside and going on to 9 o'clock at night, and I was waiting at a city bus stop. Just as the bus pulled up, a young woman walked up to the bus stop. She had a T-shirt, caprice, and flip-flops on. She also was wearing several hospital bracelets. I asked her her name and if she had a coat or anywhere to go. She quickly told me she had lost her apartment because she lost her job and then got very sick and was put into the hospital. She had no family in the area and didn't know where she was going to sleep that night. I dug in my purse and took out some bus tickets and $5 so she could get something to eat. I then took off my jacket and tennis shoes and gave them to her. I said these are a little big, but they should keep you warm. She looked at me and said, aren't you going to be cold? I told her for me, being cold for 15 minutes until I get to my place is worth it if I know you'll be a little warmer for wherever you end up. She cried and thanked me with a hug. I just told her to pass it on. Then after I got on the bus, that's when the miracle of spreading kindness happened. I stepped up to pay the fare and the bus driver says, ma'am, I saw what you just did and your fare is on me. But even though technically we aren't supposed to let you on the bus without shoes, he said, <laughs> with a wink. I went to sit down, and this lady who was dressed in a very professional business who calls me over to her seat. She says, I want to know the name of the person who just did the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. I told her my name, and she's like, well, what can I do for you to give back what I just witnessed? I jokingly said a paying job would be nice. She said I might be able to work something out. She asked for my name and number, and she said she would call me the next day. The next day, she calls me and says there's a part-time administrative position open in her company and wants me to come in and meet with the manager today. It turned out the lady was the head of HR for the company. I went in for the interview and got a call this afternoon. I start Monday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for all inspiring me to keep passing the kindness on. I never expected to get so much back in return. And she's referring to this culture. There's a, a pay-it-forward culture that's, um, that Nippon organized where you... Um, uh, he gives out these smile cards, and, um, and you voluntarily 
uh, offer to do things, whether it's give somebody flowers or pay for their dinner or their toll, and the encouragement is to pass it on, to keep passing the generosity on. So this is what happens when we start to turn our minds towards kindness. So one thing to ref- that's useful to reflect on as we leave the retreat is to reflect on where is metta, where is kindness and compassion needed in your life? Where is most, uh, where is calling for this quality of heart? So I think often for most of us, and this is true here too, when most people that I talk to uh, refer to how difficult it was to wish metta for themselves, how difficult it was to open the heart to love for ourselves. And so I think that's also true in our lives because of course if, we, if it's difficult to do that with ourselves, our lives will also be a manifestation to some degree of that. So I think of the Walt Whitman line, and as to myself, I know of nothing but miracles. And as to me, I know of nothing but miracles. Is a beautiful line, a beautiful expression of self-matter. And if that were true, then how would our life look differently than it is now? How would we be living? So one place to look is how we relate to our body, how we treat our body. If you think back about how you arrived here last Friday night, your body probably wasn't very happy. It was probably tired and run down and stressed and probably being pushed and overridden considerably, as often is the case in our busy lives, our work lives. We take on so much, we often do too much, and we don't listen to the needs of the simple needs of our body to, to sleep enough hours or to eat regularly. I often talk to people who um, routinely don't eat at work. They're just too busy, the pressure's too much, and, and eating just gets minimized. I personally couldn't function, I'd collapse. But some people are able to do that and survive on Snickers bars. But to, to, to reflect on, you know, part of self-love is to take care of the body. So to, and to ask the body what it needs in terms of rest or restoration or nourishment. And I think you know, in this culture, there's a collective blindness about pushing uh, and overriding the body and, and subsequent stresses and health consequences. So I spent some time uh, living in Spain uh, in the 90s and um, I learned to value the culture of siestas, which I have religiously taken to ever since. It's my, my one daily practice that I never miss. <laughs> And there's this great line that's a Spanish proverb that um, would only come from Spain. It goes like this. It is beautiful to do nothing and to rest afterwards. (laughs) Beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. Somehow I don't see that coming from an American. So what would that be like to really give our body the rest it needs? the food it needs, the nourishment it needs, the love it needs. Another thing I think about is um, the company that we keep, the company that we keep, 
the Buddha was very uh, clear about being mindful of the people we hang out with. Why? Because we're so affected by other people. And he said to be sure to be keep company with the wise. Keep company with those who support your practice of ethics, of wisdom, of kindness, of love. The poet David White puts it this way. He says, anyone who does not bring you alive is too small for you. Anyone who does not bring you alive is too small for you. So to reflect on the, the company. I know when I, um, you know, through the years of my practice, my friendships changed significantly because when I first started practicing, I suddenly had a very different set of values and friendships, some friendships naturally just, just faded because there was just such a difference in what was valued, what was important. Another thing that, it's an odd thing to say, but I, I, again, I noticed this um, because of the, the work culture uh, and the doing culture and the to-do list and the, the, the onslaught of technology and uh, the time scarcity that, that runs through the culture um, is we forget to um, do, do things that bring gladness, do things that cultivate the quality of joy, which, of course, makes it much easier to cultivate mudita, appreciative joy, if we're also cultivating it within ourselves. So um, I often you know, talk to people in my therapy practice or coaching practice and they're stressed and they're tired and they feel disconnected from themselves and unhappy. And I often will say, what are you doing that brings you joy? What are you doing that brings some lightness or happiness in your week? And often they'll say, I don't know. I'm working and I'm taking care of the house, and that's it. And, and I ask, well, do you wonder why you're not feeling so happy? Unless you love your work, which you know, can be true. But So, um, and this is true for myself. You know, I, we all get into work mode and busy mode and forget to do the things that nourish us. I remember when I was writing my book, um, and I was also working teaching and traveling and whatnot, and I, I was working really hard, and I had the conversation with a friend of mine that, I, that clients often have with me, and, my, and I said to my friend, I'm just not happy. I'm just working, working, and, and he said, well, what are you doing for fun? What are you doing for joy? I said, mm, not a lot. <laughs> I'm working <laughs> and writing, and he said, well, I always do one thing a day that brings me joy, and I thought, that's a great practice. So my, my main joy is to be outside in nature, so I, I promised myself, and I was writing about it was a book, my book about meditation and nature, so it didn't make sense that I wasn't getting outside. <laughs> so I vowed to walk every day and uh, to be outside, and it was just the time when we had a two-month, uh, it was an El Nino year, um, so it was torrential rain for pretty much two months straight. It was flooding, and, and it was fantastic. I just put my rain gear on, and I, I hiked every single day in the rain, and it was and my, whole, my whole experience transformed because I was doing something that I loved. So, of course, the, the, the essence of the practice is how we, how we bring this quality into our relationships, into, into our lives, with, into relationships with others. The, the poet Rumi puts it this way. He says, Everything, every growing thing as it grows says this truth. You harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. Don't plant anything but love. So, 
I was just giving a talk to the staff on impermanence, on this preciousness of life that we don't know how long we're here or whether this contact, this conversation, this moment, this meeting will be the last. We really don't. And so when we remember that, we're much more inclined towards kindness, towards appreciation, towards gratitude, towards love. Sylvia Borstein, that fellow teacher at Spirit Rock, she says, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? So I was just on uh, a a phone call uh, with a student who was going through a very difficult divorce, very painful, acrimonious, and he's, he's uh, recently uh, started practicing and um, but dealing with some very, very difficult uh, conversations and phone calls and accusations from his ex-partner. And, uh, and he's also trying to keep his heart open. And, uh, and I was just really feeling today, uh, you know, we, we have these situations in our lives where we're often faced with hostility with aggression, with anger, with people that don't like us. And often our difficult people are the ones who have difficulty for us. And so the challenge is how do we stay open? How do we remember kindness in those situations? How do we remember to stay, to stay non-reactive, to stay loving? And it's not so easy. And this practice is, is, is work. Um, but it also saves us from so much suffering. He's, he talks about how because he hasn't added to the acrimony, hasn't added to the, the fuel on the fire, but it's actually, it's much easier for him to at least hold himself uh, with some ease in this fire. So again, the combination of mindfulness and metta, they work together, they're not separate practices. So as we move in the world, as we, as we talk to people and meet friends and be with difficulty, the quality of presence that we bring is informed by our attentiveness and our kindness, our attunement, our empathy with what we meet. And so that combination of mindfulness and meditation allows a certain responsiveness, a certain vulnerability even. This is a story that I've read before uh, that speaks to this um, responsiveness. And again, it speaks to the simplicity of the response that's needed as we express kindness. I stand by the bed where a young man, a young woman, lies, her face post-operative, her, mo- her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny, tw- a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. A surgeon I'd followed with a religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband's in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth, who gaze and touch each other so generously? The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man, he smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. And mindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth 
and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that kiss still works. I remember the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and I let the wonder in. So again, to reflect on where is metta needed in your life, in, in the ways that you move in the world, in the relationships, in the situations that you're in, in work, in your family, in friendships. How would it look differently if, you, if, you, if there was the way you are was more imbued with kindness, with forgiveness, with love? There was a story, of rather odd story, but a, a touching one, of um, uh, a competition to find the most caring child, which seems slightly oxymoronic because I think children are naturally caring. Um, but anyhow, somebody organized this competition. And a four-year-old won it. And the story goes, he uh, was living next to an elderly couple and the the, uh, the, the woman of the couple died, and so um, the man was left uh, bereft and was grieving a lot and would sit on his porch uh, in the front of his house. And one day, the boy and his mom was walking past the house, and they saw, he saw the, the old man sitting on the porch, and so he shook free of his mom's hand and ran up the garden path and crawled onto the old man's lap and just sat there for a while, and the mum waited patiently, and then at some point uh, he came back, and his mum asked, so what did you do up there? And he said, oh, nothing, I just helped him cry. Just helped him cry. Very simple, very simple. So and again, to, to go back to a point I was talking about earlier, one of the gifts of our presence, particularly as you leave a retreat, uh, the, the gifts of kindness, the ways we can express kindness is through your presence. And we often forget, we often get into thinking we have to do something as a fix somebody or help them or, you know, we're often over, leaving ourselves and doing too much. And often all people need is to be seen. They need to be heard. They need to be reflected. And one of the great things you can bring when you leave retreat is that presence, because you've all been developing a quality of listening, a receptivity. Um, and so, so sometimes when I give this talk, I'm concerned that people think, oh, I've got to you know, roll up my sleeves and start doing and being really you know, helpful. And, and it's like, that may be true, but this also can be very, very uh, uh, simple and actually a non-doing. And sometimes less is more. And sometimes it's just showing up with awareness, with kindness. And I'm going to read another story. Um, it's the story, bedtime story talk this evening. This is a story that I um, found on Facebook, which I can't say I very find not much from Facebook makes its way into my Dharma talks. And, <laughs> which is probably not a surprise to anybody, but anyhow, here it is. 
I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of the shift, I thought about driving away, but instead I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute answered a frail elderly voice. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 40s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets, no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks on the, on the counters. Would you, carry me, would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother to be treated. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? Well, it's not the shortest way, I answered. And then she said, oh, but I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator, through a neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she asked me to slow in front of a particular building and would just sit quietly in the darkness. As the first hint of the sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, can we go now? We drove in silence to the address she'd given me. It was a low building like a small convalescent home. Two orderlies came out as we pulled up. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already in a seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Oh, nothing, I said. Oh, but you have to make a living, she answered. Oh, but there's other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You can give an old woman a little moment. You've given an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you, and squeezed her hand. And then I walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run or had honked once and then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. So that's simple, that responsive, that caring, that within our capability. But it does require that we're attentive, that we're listening, that we respond with an open heart. And as in that case, it comes often very naturally. comes less naturally when we're busy, when we're rushing, when we're caught up in ourselves and our stories and our dramas.
So I think I'll stop there. And again, to just reiterate this point that we all have this capacity. You've been growing this heart of matter in whatever way you've been touching it. And it's accessible and life will help both draw it out and challenge it and bring forth the opportunity to express it, to share it. And I have complete confidence in you. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.